Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So welcome lovers of product. Today I'm here with Carrie Jenkins, the CEO of Substantial. Carrie, why don't you uh, kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Well, my background started in journalism, believe it or not. So that's what I studied in graduate school. And that was my first real job that was not service oriented to pay through getting school. And I worked in magazines in the 90s. And I don't know, pretty quickly got disillusioned with it. It's not near as much writing as you think it'll be when you when you first start it. But one of the things that I did at one of the magazines I worked at was manage the editorial calendar for the website. So this was, you know, late 90s. Websites were still pretty new. It was certainly not a complex product, but it afforded me a lot of experience in digital products that most people didn't have that kind of experience at that point. And I really liked it. And so when I left the magazine world and left New York City at that point and was trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life, I thought, well, I've got this experience in something that not a lot of people have experience in. And sure enough, it was pretty easy to get jobs based on that. And that really started off my career in digital products. And that was, you know, 20 years ago at this point. And I've been doing it ever since. And so typically I've done it freelance. I've done it at um, you know more traditional digital agencies I've done a lot of e-commerce about 10 years ago I was almost primarily doing e-commerce and then for the last decade uh, I've been doing a, a, a lot more sort of typical digital product work consumer products and consumer apps and I've been at substantial for almost nine years so tell me the substantial story Oh, it's a good one. Substantial's great. Uh, so Substantial's been around for about 14 years. It's a digital innovation and build studio. And so we're a group of, a small group, less than 50, very experienced product creators. And we're sort of a one-stop shop for human-centered research, high-quality product design and development. And at this point, a lot of ethical innovation, best practices, and a lot of capacity building. So when people come to work with us, and we work our People come to work with us because we're a client services company. We are very good about teaching them how to design, build, create, sustain, launch everything, their products from sort of soup to nuts. And the kinds of companies we work with vary. So it's very small, tiny startups that are just sort of at the concept phase or maybe getting into product market fit to very large, big tech giants, multinational companies. Uh, and we've worked with everything in between. But what they all have in common is they really need a partner who can both guide them, you know, who's launched products many times before and can guide them through the process and can teach them along the way, and many times can even build their team, help them build their team, which is something we've done for a lot of our clients. Which is, and that could mean like we create their job descriptions to we vet their candidates to, you know, we do even interviews for them. We have sustained several products, you know, probably in the dozens of the products. We've launched hundreds at this point, but typically we sort of hand the product back over to our partner and, you know, set them up for success in the long term. 
And we've been doing it for a while now in this space. And we're, we're Seattle headquartered, but we're everybody's at home right now, just like most places. And we're pretty distributed and becoming even more so distributed, which I think is pretty typical for technology companies at this point in the game. And I, I started there in client services. So I started there, like I said, about nine years ago to build the client services capabilities and joined the leadership team about five years ago and have been CEO for almost three years. Congratulations. Thank so you. Talk, talk to me about um, some of the products you've built. I mean, I know you've done work for a lot of big companies like Google's, Google, Amazon. I was going to combine them. That would be a big company. Google's on. <laughs> Google's uh, on. <laughs> Google, Amazon, Mercedes, right? Tell me about some of the products. Yeah. Well, so we've done, we have worked with most of the large companies, certainly the Seattle-based ones, like almost every product company in this in this region has done some work for Amazon or Google or Microsoft. We have done work for all the large companies, Mercedes, News Corp comes to mind, like a lot of large companies. Can't talk about most of the work we've done with them. I can talk about some of it. So the work we did for uh, Mercedes, for instance, was to help them launch a concierge app for one of the fleets of automobiles that they have that had remote locking capabilities. So this was about an app that would provide um, services to the car on site without the owner needing to be there, right? Because you could remote unlock and lock the car. So that's what we did. We worked with their R&D department, which was, they were amazing to work with, great client, really, really good. So we have done, like I said, work for some, startups. Our most successful startup is in the cannabis space. <laughs> That's the most successful startup we've worked with, but we've done work in addiction recovery. We've done quite a bit of work with foundations. So both educational foundations, health foundations, and social work foundations, and done work with the state of Washington. So it really, like when I say our client base varies, <laughs> I really mean it. It's, and we don't specialize in a specific vertical. So we are, our portfolio is, is really, really varied. So one of the really interesting apps I, I found was what you had done with StoryFile. Talk to me about how that kind of reimagines the whole concept of storytelling. StoryFile is really amazing technology. And just to be clear, we did not build the technology. StoryFile had the technology. We worked with them in more of a consulting, a consultancy fashion to help get them ready to scale. But they're lovely. And what their app does, it's really, really amazing, is it can take video. So you you shoot video of a person, and I've actually done it. There's a story file of me out in the world if you really want to hear me talk more. And they shoot the video asking you a series of questions. It's an interview, basically. But what their technology does is it then parses it with machine learning and it allows a user to interact with that interview via an, an app experience. And you get to ask it whatever you want. And what StoryFile will do will find the appropriate content, depending on what you ask, and serve it up to you. And so in, you know, some of the ways they have used this was a Holocaust remembrance. So they have recorded the testimony of many, many Holocaust survivors and put that into story files so that people can actually interact and talk to survivors and ask them questions. And so when they've used it that way, they take a lot of video, like you, you take hours and hours and hours of video, and that makes the experience even better. It gives more data, basically, to you know, so the machines can really feed up the most relevant content. But you can imagine the applications for this in many other ways, right? You could think of 
your your relatives, for instance, uh, older relatives, and wanting to be able to record the story of your family. Uh, you could use it for uh, job interviews. You could use it certainly in the entertainment industry. It's a, it's a really really impressive technology. I highly recommend checking it out. And like I said, there's one of me sitting out there. I, I shot four and a half hours of video for it. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, we should definitely all check that out. I thought that the whole concept of interactive storytelling is interesting, right? And to think about how that might affect our entertainment going forward. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Interacting with it is is really interesting. And there's so many applications for it. And I, I think that's there are a lot of really great things that technology is capable of doing. And I think this is a really good example of something kind of magical that you can serve up to people. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's obviously an example of using technology for great benefit, especially with the the Holocaust project. You know, at at the same time, too, you know, we're building projects and we have an opportunity to build products that solve society's greatest challenge. But we can also build products that that are ruining their world. You know, (laughs) what do you think about that? I mean, give give me your perspective on, you know, our role and our responsibility as builders. Well, you know, I consider any product that brings value to its users in a transparent exchange and doesn't hurt other users, you know, a meaningful product. I'm not anti-consumerism. I'm not against companies making a profit. I'm not really against the idea of products for profit at all. I want to make sure people understand that because a lot of times I think there's this idea that to be a meaningful product, it can't result in in a profit for the company that's created that. And I, I don't think that's the case. But do I think that we're building products that are ruining the world? Yeah, I think sometimes we are. And we aren't just building products that are ruining the world. We're building companies with the power and the scale to change the world in ways that we can't even foresee. And it's happening faster than we, I think, know how to mitigate. And it's a pretty vicious cycle because we're creating a generation of product creators who think that revenue is the only thing that matters. And we have a generation of users who are growing increasingly distrustful, but they're also really, really dependent on the technology. And these are not problems that are just at the largest companies. I want to make sure people understand that. It's easy to pick on Google and Facebook. And they are very large examples of products that I think have gone in a direction that is very troubling. But everybody in the product creation space has drank a lot of Kool-Aid over the last probably 20 years around speed to market and quests for funding and attention and disruption. And we have a complete idealization of a certain flavor of founder and of overvaluing serial entrepreneurs. And all of this is contributing to a culture that prevents us, I think, from doing some of the good we really can do. But it's not just about trying to turn a profit. It doesn't mean that a a product has to be in the social impact space to be meaningful, right? Like I said, we've built products that sell whiskey. (laughs) It's not about that. It's about the relationship you have to your users and to the ecosystem that your product lives in. That's what really determines whether or not you have a meaningful product. So can you give me some examples, like, you know, from both the negative and positive side, and then maybe we can dig in after that into how we build more conscious products? Yeah. So, you know, I think the obvious example is any product that is serving one user while sacrificing another set of users. And an example that, you know, I I give talks all the time about ethical innovation. And one of the examples that comes to mind for me is a case of a medical startup. So a startup in the health tech space, you know, this was pretty fresh. So uh, if you've heard of it, 
It might sound familiar, but they basically built a product to serve pharmaceutical companies. And what they were in the business of doing was providing software, operational software to doctors to make their practice run easier, to make their life run easier. But their customer was actually pharmaceutical companies. So in that case, you could say, well, their users were doctors, their customer was the pharmaceutical companies. Now, already that should tell you that there might be something amiss. But what they did after a lot of really intentional research to see what would succeed is build a product for their doctors that would help them make quicker diagnosis and make their lives smoother and easier as they were seeing patients. But one of the options it served up more often than a lot of other options was a prescription for painkillers. And so the users that they were serving the doctors, well, you could conceivably say they improved their lives because it was quicker to get to a diagnosis. They had this platform that was there to help them about what their options were. And lo and behold, they didn't have to research about what prescriptions to provide because right there in the platform were all of the different ways they could manage pain for that patient and definitely succeeded for their customer, which was a pharmaceutical company because it made them billions of dollars. But there was another set of users in that ecosystem, and that was the patients. And what it did for the patients was cause a lot of addiction to opioids. And that's an example of a really, really vicious cycle and a product that was succeeding by all metrics, we might say, for a product. Its users were really happy with it. Its customers were really happy with it. It was revenue positive. The company was growing. It was VC-backed, and it was about to have an IPO. And what it did to the other set of users that it wasn't paying attention to is ruin their lives. That's an example of a really bad, bad product. (laughs) And by the way, they have had to pay one of the largest fines in their state's history for, for what they've done. So it's not like they weren't caught, but the damage done is done. Yeah, it kind of makes you think too. I mean, obviously this is an extreme case, but there's other less extreme cases where if you're getting something for free, you have to think about who the product is, right? I mean, we can look at that in a lot of free products out there. If you're not actually paying for it, then are, are you part of the product itself? And how does that affect your interactions with the product, knowing that you're not the customer that's actually paying the bills, so to speak? Yeah. And I, I think, I actually think that's the one of the largest examples. That's certainly what I think people are increasingly understanding is the case at Google and at Facebook, but it's also the case at companies like Uber, when the prices or even the, your local food delivery app, when the prices for the service that you were getting are so much lower than you think they would be, right? You get highly addicted to using those services. You get high engagement, you get high growth. They're losing money on it. And they know that. This is you know, certainly a model you could say came from Amazon, like decades of losing money, but they will eventually have all of the market share and they will have all the power. And at that point, they've got drivers who are depending on them, right, for income. They've got users who have gotten rid of their cars, frankly. Like a lot of people have thought about downsizing or have gotten rid of cars because of the ubiquitous of ride sharing. And it's a vicious cycle that they control. So the scale of that particular problem where you're getting something for free or much lower cost than it actually should cost is a prime example of some of these massively scaled products, massive scales. But even at the mid-scale, which the company that built the health tech app that I was referring to was not huge. They certainly weren't small, though. They are replicating this model that they have seen succeed 
in so many other ways, which is to build a platform right, for one set of users that is serving up another set of users as a basically a sacrifice to the platform, right? Either as eyeballs to sell advertising, or in this case, as patients to buy prescriptions. So how do we build more conscious products? And I, I think you, you talk about building meaningful products. Maybe you define what you mean by meaningful, and then tell us how we do a better job of building more conscious products. Well, I mentioned that I'm not against consumer products, right? I'm not against uh, making money. If there is a fair exchange for services, I think that's successful. I think if it's a positive experience for the user and it's a fair exchange of value for what they're getting, then that is meaningful. Ethical products is probably a slight, maybe even a slightly higher bar and has some real specific sort of best practices, you know, that you can employ to make sure you're being more ethical. But I can tell you one of the number one things we could do to build better products is slow down. And nobody wants to hear that, (laughs) including all of our clients, right? It's not like all of our clients are like, please take your time (laughs) to whatever you need to do before we get our MVP out. They're not. This is a friction that we feel every single day. So I'm not suggesting it's easy. But the emphasis on speed to market above all else that we have experienced for the last 20 years in product is hurting us as an industry and it's hurting society and civilization. And it's I believe it's blocking the kind of true innovation that we need to solve some of those real challenges like climate change and the healthcare system and many other things. And so slowing down gives you the ability to ask much, much better questions than I think we're asking right now. So that's the first thing I would say is slow down, be fair with yourself about what it's going to take to actually deliver something valuable to your users, something that is worth their attention and whatever they are exchanging for that, um, for that value. And ask yourself some really, I think, hard questions. Why should this product exist? The answer to that is just to make you money, right? There's probably something imbalanced about this exchange. Is this product for your users or is it for yourself? Is that exchange fair and is that exchange balanced? It's okay to want to make money, but what are they getting in exchange for that? Right now, I think the bias is way, way, way skewed towards getting things out, getting them in the hands for people. The, the data, which I understand is, is like gold, right? Getting data, getting your product. But I don't think that we are taking the time that we need in a lot of cases to really think about the user. And the other thing I would say is, what are your teams empowered to do? So almost every product is built by a team even the smallest product, right? It's it's very rare that a product is built by one sole person. It's not possible, but at some point, there are multiple people touching your product. And in most companies, even a company my size, a product team's, I don't know, eight to 10 people. Larger companies, their product teams are hundreds of people. What are they empowered to do to think critically? What is each individual empowered to do to think critically? If you have a, just a team of order takers, that is rife for products to be built in a way that will at some point sacrifice something, either the builders themselves, the users, but somebody's going to pay for building a product like that. And when I speak to product managers in particular, I like to impress upon them their leadership responsibility, specifically product managers, because they are at the front lines of almost every decision that could have an impact on the users. And they also have the power to make sure people can stop and think critically and ask really, really good questions. 
And here are the answers to those questions, right? It really, really starts with modeling what product managers do. If your product managers are scared to push back, don't understand the objectives of a product, you are going to feel that disconnect in the product. And again, someone's going to pay for that. Yeah. And then the last thing I would say, sorry, one last thing. And this is probably most important with the larger companies, but it happens in mid companies and it's definitely happening in startups. Ask yourself what you're incentivizing. So when product teams or product managers are incentivized by speed to market or revenue or engagement and growth only, that is going to be what they think about above all else. And you are telling them that is what they should think about above all else. So you cannot be surprised that they are trading off other values and other things that are important in service of the thing you have told them is the most important thing. And I see this all through product culture, right? This is how compensation packages are drawn up. If your compensation is largely an equity, what is it that you are going to be thinking about the entire time you are working for that product? That is, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I would argue too, isn't isn't a lens we should use? Is it in the best interest of your user? And let me take some of the examples you talked about, right? And add some others. There's obviously the bad scenario where, you know, the, the doctor's office, well, the patients might not have been the users. They were associated with the doctors. And, you know, doctors creating addicted patients probably isn't making them happy either, right? So there's that, there's definitely a bad product there. It's not in the best interest of, of the users of the system, whether those users are doctors, but definitely not the patients themselves. Then I feel like there's like this gray area, right? Where, you know, take my Alexa. When I bought Alexa, I loved it. You know, it gave me great, you know, I would get my calendar off of it. It would be able to call an Uber for me. It would do some really cool stuff. And now they start adding shopping on top, right? A little gray area, like they're pushing me product. I don't really need the product they're pushing me. So, you know, it's not in my best interest. I know they try to make it feel like it's my best interest, like it's personalized, but it's really, it's definitely detracted from my Alexa experience. And I think now I finally turned it off, but that was kind of like the gray area where you can see that like, hey, this this might not help me a lot and maybe it helped others. I don't know. It was kind of that gray area. Mobile games, another one of those where like it's it's fun, but they build them to kind of be addictive, right? Where you get to the point where you feel like you need to spend money on the mobile game and it becomes more of a daily chore as opposed to something that's a fun little interlude, right? Where they suck you in with a fun interlude and they get you to start paying money over and over again. And that's not in my best interest as a user either. And probably isn't in the long-term interest of the company because at some point you stop that habit, right? Or at least we hope we do. So is, is that a lens we can look at too? Like looking at it from the, you know, is it in the best interest of the underlying user? I think that, uh, yes, I mean, for sure. But I think there's a lot of ways to game that question, right? And gaming is a perfect example of this. Gaming is rife with dark patterns and things that yeah, we've yeah. learned over many, many years that basically create addictive experiences. But when you ask gamers, have they been entertained? Their answer is almost always yes, right? They may absolutely have an addiction to it, but they are also entertained. And so if the lens with which you ask gamers to decide if it's in the user's best interest and the users are entertained, I, I think you've got your answer. If you make them slow down and ask them a different set of questions, a deeper set of questions. So it's, I'm yes anding what you're saying. Like, yes, that question is very important, but you yeah. have to go many steps below. And as far as the medical thing, I, I actually think... I 
like, this is no knock on doctors because doctors are really busy, but they're going to see that patient that time. And then that patient's going to take pain pills and that patient's complaining of pain. I mean, we have a situation across the country where people are massively addicted to opioids. Those were all prescribed. The majority of them were prescribed by doctors. So I don't think that the, in the end, the doctor's best interest really is going to, they really are going to say like, hey, this hasn't been good for me. It's an option. It got served yeah. up to me, right? Well, it definitely so, wasn't their patient's best interest. It's as, definitely not. But the kind of the user of the yeah. user. It's like maybe one, exactly. one uh, step beyond, but. I think that's one of the reasons why the incentivize this incentivization and the slowing down are really important because yeah. what we have done, I believe in product culture. And the reason why I do think we have the power to create products that ruin the world is that we have crappy values, right? They're not evil, right? It's easy to go to the evil side, right? When somebody at that medical practice was deciding to build that app, were they evil people? From all the research I did, no, they weren't. They had design principles. <laughs> they were following, they were doing like best practices and product. I don't think they were evil, nor do I think the people at Alexa are evil or, right? None of these, the majority, vast majority of these people are not evil geniuses, right? But they are separated off in these isolated teams, handed a feature set and an objective without much connection. And they're incentivized in these really, really isolated ways. And when you think about like what we value as a, a product culture, and maybe I'm being a little bit Silicon Valley and West Coast centric here, even though I'm in Seattle, but when I see what our culture values right now out here, it is still money, growth, money, growth, funding, IPOs, just, you know, unicorns. It is still, even the smaller products that, you know, are not Facebook, are not Google, They that is what where they want to go. And that is the measure of success. And so it's very hard to make people understand that there is a price for that. And at the scale that technology is taking over the world, even more so than it already has, like that price is us. We're the price. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm know, a product creator. <laughs> I agree with a lot of what you say. At the same time, I look at it and say, like, I don't know that the money and the growth is necessarily the bad thing. I, I think the mechanism they get there is bad. I mean, you know, I'm a gamer, right? So I can take this whole mobile game versus, you know, like, uh, you know, other companies that are out there. When you look at the mobile games, like how they're trying to create money by maybe building in slot machine mechanics into their games, you know, I don't think that's good, right? And it, it takes advantage of certain people. But at the same time, you have other games out there like, uh, you know, The Witcher. I don't know if you ever watched the television show because that became really hot. But there's a there's a video game that was based on a book. It's done really well, one game of the year. They're completely anti that kind of approach. It's like, we're going to build you entertainment. We're going to give you joy. We're not going to pull, you know, build in those kinds of principles. And they've done really well too. I think Polish company, as it turns out, you know, one of the best, performing companies in Poland. So I think there can be, in, in my opinion, there can be a risk associated with, you know, money at all costs. I don't think looking at necessarily growth and money and moving quickly means that you're going to go down that path. I, I think it probably gives you more of an opportunity to go down that path, right? With mobile games and with the pharma company or doctor software company being examples of that. 
Well, I think that the thing is, I don't think making money means you built a bad product. So yeah, no, I, no, no. I don't, I, but even I having that, that incentive around quick growth, right? Like going, I mean, it, it might depends be harder. on what other framework and scaffolding you have in place. Yes, though, right? yes, so exactly. I agree. If you have the scaffolding in place to care about the users, to ask the questions, to to think about the entire ecosystem your product is, then I think it's very possible to be incredibly successful. Although I. I highly doubt a very engaging game that is delightful and joyful happened quickly, right? Like they no, take time. They're, they're time intensive, right? Yeah. Right. So I think there's that to, you know, the, the consumer apps that people are interacting with are going much quicker than that. And the the implications of what those consumer apps do is happening much quicker. Sometimes quick, quicker than, than can be reacted to. And so it's really about the, the framework with, within which you are pursuing the objective of money and profit. Nobody builds a product to not make money. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, very rarely, right? Like, unless you are working again for a nonprofit or externally funded, like, you know, almost all products are built to, in some respects, have high engagement or make money for their user groups, right? And I'm not against that. But if you don't have the scaffolding in place, and I think this is, I would consider the incentivization, for instance, some of the scaffolding. I would consider the diversity of your team, some of the scaffolding. Yep. I would consider whether or not you have design as a primary driver of decisions in your product as some of the scaffolding. And you might be able to get away with some weak scaffolding in a few areas, but if it's too weak, you know, it's going to fall down at some point. And what about the what about the business model as part of the scaffolding? Like I Take Absolutely. Facebook as, as an example, right? When when you have a free product, it, it puts in place a risk of, you know, because I'm not paying for Facebook, right? Because I'm not paying $5 a month or whatever it happened would it would cost me. Now I get ads and I get ads that might be based upon my habits, my personalization. I get ads based upon who wants to pay the most to reach me. There's a lot of cool tech back there, but it's all about getting me to buy things that I may or may not want to buy, or it's getting me to vote for someone I may or may not want to vote for. There's a lot of incentives in that business model that could affect that too, right? There absolutely are. And there's as much incentives for you to interact with your own content as there are for you to interact with the ads. Because every time you interact with your content, they learn even more about you and they can segment you even more effectively yeah, yeah. to sell the ads. So it's not like they're just, in, they, they just want your eyeballs. They don't. They actually want you to interact with their platform, which means they're also incentivized to make engaging features, right? To do things that are engaging on the platform. And that's one of the reasons why the content that is the most engaging, right, is served up the most. And right now, the content that's most engaging is the most controversial and least truthful content you can find on the platform. So it's, again, a very, very vicious cycle that, in all honesty, I suspect started off as, oh, hey, we could build an ad platform with this data. And really not a mind to what it was going to be like when they were one of the largest media providers in the world, right? For large, large parts of the population. Yeah. Now I'll ask something that maybe is a little controversial. Do we as consumers bear some responsibility? I mean, we're the ones that click on that clickbait. We're the ones that, you know, get incensed over things that may or may not be true that we probably don't research to find out if they are true. Like, do we bear some of the responsibility in addition to the, the product designers, the people building these products? 
I think we're in the, the phase right now, right as they started realizing that cigarettes cause cancer. <laughs> so I don't think we bared responsibility for people starting to smoke cigarettes when they no, were no. largely considered harmless and gave people a quick hit of feeling good. But they uh, paid for the cigarettes, oddly. They, uh, they yeah. did pay for the In the, the case cigarettes. of Facebook, we wanted something um, free, right? We were like, oh, it's free. It's great. Yeah. And we haven't thought about well, the, the ramifications. Free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's they got true. the cancer for free. I get, my point is more that like we are coming to the point where I think it's more widely known and understood the implications of these platforms. Now, technologists, I think, bear a much greater responsibility, both when we're acting as a consumer and when we're acting as a technologist. That's why I speak as much as I can in the community. I talk about this at my company. I talk about to anyone who will listen. These are the pitfalls of technology. This is how you can use it more responsibly and not use it. That doesn't mean I'm not on some of these platforms that are problematic. I certainly use some of these platforms too, but I am more careful about how I use them and I talk about it. And I certainly am careful about where my eyeballs go and I'm choosy. So I would hold myself to a much higher bar than your average consumer. And I think that's the part where we're sort of in a bubble out here, right? Or wherever your little technology culture is. If you're the kind of person listening to this podcast, I assure you, you are in a bubble that millions, if not billions of consumers are not in. If you are on Twitter or you are on Wired, you you read Wired and you understand you're on Netflix watching The Social Dilemma, you are consuming the kind of content that might give you a clue as to how these platforms make money and what the detrimental effects could be, you are in a category very separate from a general consumer of these. And so at that point, I think they're still in the they're still in the world where cigarettes are really great for you and everybody's smoking them all the time yeah, inside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, cigarettes are a horrible story because we actually paid for the bad addictive experience. Right. Uh, But also the cigarettes are not as bad as the platforms because cigarettes didn't become a utility. Yeah. Technology is becoming a utility and you can't opt out of it. Like Facebook gets a lot of hatred around now, but I told you Google (laughs) is a platform that people are using for almost every aspect of their life, including access to all of the information, entertainment, and writing in the world, in the known world. And we do it all the time, including myself. And as far as platforms that, you know, have the the danger of being detrimental, YouTube is right up there with anything that Facebook is doing, if not worse. And yet Google is at this point almost a, a utility that you can't get your work done without it. And so that's the big difference between technology and say a cigarette. We paid for cigarettes. We, we get Google for free, but now we don't know how to un-Google ourselves. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely get that. So how do you convince product teams to think about ethical responsibility more? Well, I talk about it first of all. So guilt, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of guilt, a lot of like, Hey, what, what the hell are you doing? I think people are starting to open their eyes, right? I really do. I think we're, we're experiencing it either with our children or their relatives, the elections, you know, real earth shattering events that are going on in other parts of the world and in our parts of the world. I think we have an increasing awareness of what's going on with products that are not intentional. But the way that I usually talk about it with them is a really clear set of questions that you need to ask yourself. And you ask them whether you're a leader at a company or you ask them whether you're an individual contributor on a product. And they seem really basic, but you'd be surprised how many people have never asked themselves these questions. They start off with like, what is valuable about this product? Who is paying for it? But the one that gets people the most 
is, could you tell every player in your ecosystem what this product is doing, how it is monetized, and where all the data is going, and be completely transparent about that, and it'd be okay? And that's the question that usually gets people. So if you just started with that one, everyone asks themselves that. And what typically happens when I give this talk is that a lot of people who work for some of the large technology platforms get real squeamish and they feel like they're powerless, right? Because like they're in their job, they're on their career path, they're making a ton of money. <laughs> like nothing comes for free. This is our responsibility, right? And you have the power to stand up and ask a question. And then when you get the answer, you have the power to do what you can about it. And if you can't do anything about it, then you have to ask yourself if you're going to stay. Nobody yeah. wants to hear that. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you just answered my follow-up questions. Like, what action steps can they take, right? I mean, they can ask I mean, the, the reality is, is technologists move jobs all the time. All the time, right? And that's mm -hmm. what I think about when, when people are like, well, there's lots of bad things happening. We can't just think about Facebook and Google. I'll tell you what I think about Facebook and Google and Amazon and all the rest is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of product managers, product designers, product engineers are going to leave those jobs eventually and go work somewhere else. They'll go work for a startup. They might create a startup. They might go work for one of the other tech giants or you know, go for another company altogether. They're not going to stay at one job for their entire careers. Most of them won't. What do they take with them? They take the dark patterns. This is what happened between Google and Facebook. They, sh they shared dark patterns, right? The Google ad platform people brought it to Facebook. And so it's important to have these conversations with as many people as you can because we're, we're, we're trading people all the time. So if you're a technologist and you're somewhere and you know that what's going on is not right and you're opening your eyes to it, you're not covering them, leave. You're highly employable, highly employable. And you'll get a job somewhere else. I definitely say stand up for yourself before you leave, though. I definitely say stand up and ask the question and then go. There's just, we live, it's a very lucky environment to have, but technologists are in, you know, high, high demand. You have more power than you think. Yeah, that's true. And hopefully you don't take your black patterns, dark patterns with that's you. That's right. Don't take the dark patterns with don't you. Take Leave the dark, the dark patterns, patterns at the door. <laughs> yes. Leave them there. Think about, uh, I think that it's a great question you talked about. If you can talk to everyone in, in the ecosystem and, and be transparent, are, are they still content, right? Are they still happy with what the business yeah. is doing? Is it a fair trade? And a lot of people aren't even mapping the ecosystem. So this is a practice. This is one of the reasons why I think designers in particular can be a big part of ethical product creation. They're not the panacea, right? It's not on them by themselves, but if some real like rigorous systems thinking can really help this problem. So in the case of the medical app, for instance, we've already talked about this. We had the pharmaceutical company. They're one little you know, part of the ecosystem. The doctors are another part of the ecosystem. The patients are another ecosystem. There's also insurance providers. There's also the office managers of the company. There's the pharmacists that fill the prescriptions. There's regulatory, right? There's all of the stuff that goes along in a, life, a product life cycle that's in the health tech space. Map that ecosystem, right? Map it out. And then ask yourself a question about every single person in that ecosystem. I assure you this step is getting missed a lot, particularly in the medium to small companies. And it can have a huge impact, right? It'll help you ask better questions about what your product implications could be. Hmm. So I, I think we've touched on a lot. When you talk to product teams, what else are they overlooking? I mean, it feels like now... Asking that question is like, well, <laughs> let's deal with these big issues out there, but I'll yeah. ask them nonetheless. 
I think it, there's a philosophical thing. Maybe, maybe they're missing. I, I won't presume to say everybody's missing it, but I think it's that attention is finite. You are not just competing for dollars. You are not just competing for eyeballs. You are competing for the human attention span and there's a limit to it. <laughs> so make it worthwhile. Make that attention. Where, like you're getting their attention, right? And you probably want more of it. You either want it to repeat more often or you want more attention while you're getting it, right? This is the, the sort of genesis of a lot of dark patterns is how do I keep their attention? Before you even do that, why do you want their attention? And why do you deserve their attention? Ask that question. Like, you know, I think this entrepreneurship, as, as I see it and experience it in many different venues, is a person who's saying, like, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to be a founder and there's a problem I want to solve. I'm like, okay. What's the problem, first of all? And they, they have varying degrees of understanding of their problem space. But what they're not considering is that we only have so much attention and it's a crowded space. And so why should you get that attention? Why should any product get that attention? It's attention that could be given to themselves, to their families, to their work, to their passions, to their hobbies, right? Why should you be given their attention? And really like answer that question. And if you are as passionate about the answer to that question as you are about being an entrepreneur or a founder or starting a company, then you might be on the right path. Well, thanks. I think you've given us a lot to think about. Just a couple of final questions. Let's let's turn our attention to you. What's your favorite product? My record player. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, actually, I'm not. We just got a record player and I had one a while back and it broke and I didn't replace it for years. And now I just got one and it's a Bluetooth record player. So I don't have to have all this set up. It just hooks into a Bluetooth. It's still very techy for a record player, but it's really nice to have that tactile feeling of records again. So I will say that, but to be true to product speak, there are two products that I think are really great. One is Miro. I use it all the time. So we're all remote right now and we still have a lot of collaborative sessions. Um, we do a lot of collaborative workshops and Miro is basically an interactive sort of whiteboarding experience. It's a great product. It works really well. They've been releasing features over and over again since just in the past year since lockdown happened. And it's great. And a product I use on my phone all the time that I think has done a great job is called Acorns. So it's been out since, I want to say it's been seven or eight years. It's an investing app. I've never been one to be a portfolio watcher in any way, shape or form. And I i don't have some giant stock portfolio. I didn't get some buyout or get equity at any, any company. So I'm a you know part-time investor. But what Acorns you know, started out with was just rounding up your transactions and putting it in a stock portfolio. And then you you start to get more used to it. And it's still a really great experience. They've, they've certainly added features to it, but it's, it's simple and it provides me value. I use it all the time. Awesome. So one final question for you, Carrie, three words to describe yourself. Uh, committed, joyful, and fulfilled. Awesome. Thanks for being here. This is great. Yeah. Thank you for having me.